Well, let's open our Bibles one more time tonight to the book of Judges. And tonight we're going to be looking in Judges chapter 21. Last chapter of this book as we have been slowly working our way through the book of Judges over these last few months. And I'll be honest, there's sometimes I get done with a book study and I'm, I'm, I'm torn. I, I, I've enjoyed it so much I don't want to leave it. But then there's times where I'm getting finished with it and I'm like, whew, glad this is coming to an end. Not because it's not good or helpful, just some of it's hard. And the book of Judges is like that. I know that a lot of times when we think of the book of Judges, we think of those some of the great stories like Gideon and the story of Samson and remember our childhood days in children's church and Sunday school. I don't know about you, but as I read through it, I see flannel graph in my mind's eye. But as we have seen through this, some of what we think about of the book of Judges is really kind of romanticizing it. It's not totally accurate to the whole picture because in the book of Judges, we have a record of a 400-year time period in which Israel was going through this vicious cycle and downward spiral over and over and over again. And it just gets worse and worse and worse as you progress through their history. And we come to this last chapter, and um, interestingly, we don't really know exactly when during that 400 years the events of chapters 19, 20, and 21 took place. It could have been even earlier in the history, but it's put last in the book. And I believe that's kind of as uh, an example to us of just how bad things can get when there is a spiritual culture like Israel had when everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. In fact, look at the very last verse of this book, Judges 21, verse 25. It says, In those, day, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And all of the horrible stuff that you read about in the book of Judges can be traced back to that statement. As the people behaved that way because they lived this way. They believed that they could decide what was right. They could do whatever they felt like doing. It was spiritual anarchy. And ultimately, it resulted in a culture of death, even as we're going to see here again tonight. Just to review very quickly, in Judges chapter 19, we have the story of a Levite and his concubine who are traveling. They go to a town and some horrible things take place in that town and the man's wife, his concubine, ends up dead. And so he responds with a horrible action of his own to communicate a message to all of Israel. Everybody gets this message and Israel comes together in chapter 20 and they decide that they're going to punish the men of Gilead, who, who um, of Gibeah rather, who had committed this horrible crime. And so they go to the Benjamites and they ask the Benjamites to deliver the men who were guilty. The Benjamites wouldn't do it. And so what happens in chapter 20 is a civil war in which more than 60,000 Israelites die. And we saw as we looked at this last week that it would have been far better if Israel had banded together early on to stop the sins of the nation before they got so bad. 
But now we come to chapter 21, and this is the aftermath of that civil war. And really, this is the, the final nail in the coffin, if you want to look at it that way. And I'm entitled the sermon tonight, Man's Solution to Man's Problems. Man's Solution to Man's Problems. I don't know who it was that first said this. It's been attributed to several different uh, writers and journalists and politicians. But it's said that some of the most frightening words that we might ever hear are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. It was Ronald Reagan who said, government is not the solution to the problem, government is the problem. And I don't know that that's 100% true, but I think it's a more true than it ought to be. Politicians uh, far too often have a knack for creating problems and then telling us how they're going to solve them. And it seems like every time we vote, we're just stuck with choosing between who's going to mess it up the least, you know? Well, the same kind of thing is happening in Judges chapter 21. Israel created a problem, and now Israel is going to try and solve the problem they created in a lot of ways by doing the same kind of stuff that got them into the trouble in the first place. And the result was chaos and confusion and wickedness. Because when every man does that which is right in his own eyes, the result is chaos. Spiritual anarchy leads to a culture of death and debauchery like we see in Judges and like we see in our world today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we proceed. Father, help us as we study your word tonight to be able to understand the truth of it, to put it into practice in our lives. And especially this one truth tonight that we need to be very, very clear on that you have already determined what is right and wrong, and it is up to us to choose to follow you and obey that. May we stand boldly for the truth, even in a culture that denies the truth. May we do what is right, even in a culture that tells us that what is right is wrong. Give us strength and courage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me in Judges chapter 21 and verse number 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, There shall not any of us give his daughter unto Benjamin to wife. And the people came to the house of God and abode there till even before God, and lifted up their voices and wept sore, and said, O Lord God of Israel, why is this come to pass in Israel, that there should be today one tribe lacking in Israel? And it came to pass on the morrow that the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. My outline tonight is going to be much cleaner than this morning. Number one, let's notice the situation. The situation. So after the Civil War recorded in chapter 20, the 11 tribes of Israel come back to where the tabernacle is. 
And they, according to verse number 2, lifted up their voices and wept sore. You'd think after such a great victory they might be rejoicing, but don't forget that Israel lost 40,000 or so men while Benjamin lost about 25,000 men. There had been a lot of death that had taken place in just three days. And so the people were very upset. They were distraught. Now verse number 1 tells us a detail about something that took place in chapter 20 when they had initially gathered together and formed this coalition to go and punish the guilty men in Benjamin. Apparently at that time, they had all taken an oath, a promise, a covenant, that they would not, any of them, give their daughters to Benjamin, any of the men of the tribe of Benjamin, to marry. So in other words, the tribe of Judah would not let their daughters marry any boy from the tribe of Benjamin, and likewise with all the other 11 tribes. Well, they made that, that oath, that covenant, but now they realize we've got a problem because we have killed nearly all of the Benjaminites and the only ones left are 600 men that are hiding up in the rocks, up in the mountains. And we are now in danger of one of the tribes of Israel being completely wiped out. Basically, they were facing extinction. And the other 11 tribes were genuinely sorry about this. There was a genuine sorrow here, a sadness on their part, that caused them to go to God and seek a solution of sorts. Now, at this point, I do want to say that they are exhibiting a good amount of godly sorrow over sinfulness. Godly sorrow is part of the sanctification process. Turn with me to the book of James chapter 4. Keep your place in Judges because we'll be coming back. But James chapter 4. James chapter 4 verse number 8. I want you to notice what the Bible says here in connection with our sorrow and our sanctification. James 4.8 says, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So verse 8 is definitely talking about sanctification. We are to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. And verse 9 then goes on to say, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Now this is, verse 9 is written in the context of getting right with God, of sanctifying ourselves, cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts. It's not saying that we can never laugh and never have joy, never have fun. No, God wants us to be joyful. But there are times where we ought to weep. There's, there are times when our joy should be turned to sorrow. And one of those times is when there's sin. Sin should make us sad. If there is no sorrow over sin in our lives, something is wrong. If we can look on sin in our own lives and not be moved at all, if the thought of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sin doesn't bother us, then something's wrong. There ought to be 
sorrow over sin. And we see that the Israelites, they are expressing sorrow. They've lifted up their voices. They've wept sore. But back in Judges chapter 21, they ask a question of the Lord in verse 3. Why is this come to pass in Israel that there should be today one tribe lacking in Israel? God, why is this happening? Now I read that question and I just, for the life of me, I can't figure out what is, what is their thinking behind this because to me it's pretty obvious. Why is, the, why is it that they've gotten to this place? It's because for so long... Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was spiritual anarchy that led to culture of death and debauchery that ended up with all the events of chapters 19, 20, and 21. But yet they're asking God this question like they have no clue how they got there. And I wonder to myself then, are they passing the blame off on God? I don't know. I do know that it is the tendency, it is human nature to shift blame. I know that because I am human and I do it myself. But I also knew that because I look in Scripture and I see that pattern repeated over and over again. People sin and they blame someone else for it. You don't have to look any farther than Genesis chapter 3 and you find that. In fact, you find someone essentially blaming God. For sin. Because when God came to Adam after they had sinned, and Adam hid himself, and God asked him why. He said, Because I was naked. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? Adam replied by saying, The woman thou gavest me, she gave me to eat of it. Now, first of all, he's very clearly not accepting responsibility for his actions like he should. Second of all, there is an attempt to implicate God. The woman you gave me is what he said. And so the Lord turned to Eve. And what did Eve say? It was the snake. So God turned to the snake. And as the old preacher said, he didn't have a leg to stand on. And so the punishment was doled out. But the fact of the matter is that we all have a tendency to blame other people for our sin. It's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. It's not my fault. It's the church's fault. It's not my fault. It's the school teacher's fault. It's not my fault. It's my brother's sister's fault. All of this blame shifting that we're very good at, when what we need to do is accept responsibility for our actions. I think it would have been much better if Israel had come together and instead of praying like they prayed in Judges 21, that maybe they had prayed like Daniel did in the book of Daniel. Remember when he prayed to God and said, God, this is what we have done as a nation. We have walked away from you. We have broken your laws. We have violated your commandment. What did he do? He accepted responsibility, even though you might argue that Daniel was the most righteous Jew alive in his day. He still accepted responsibility. And if Israel had accepted full responsibility before God, things might have been different. And so there they are at verse 4. The next day they build an altar and they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. They were obviously concerned and they obviously wanted to do something to make it right. 
But I submit to you that how they went about making it right was wrong. Notice number two, the solution that they came up with. Verse number five, the children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel that came not up with the congregation unto the Lord? For they had made a great oath concerning him that came up, not up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the children of Israel repented them for Benjamin their brother and said, There is one tribe cut off from Israel this day. How shall we do for wives for them that remain, seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them of our daughters to wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that came not up to Mizpah to the Lord? And behold, there came none to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For the people were numbered, and behold, there were none of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead there. And the congregation sent thither twelve thousand men of the valiantest, and commanded them, saying, Go and smite the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword and with the women and children. And this is the thing ye shall do. Ye shall utterly destroy every male and every woman that hath lain by man. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead four hundred young virgins that had known no man by lying with any male, and they brought them unto the camp to Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So just to recap here, they, they said, we've got a problem now because we're in danger of one of the tribes going extinct. We need to do something that's not right. So here was the solution that they came up with. They looked around and they said, all right, in addition to taking an oath that we wouldn't give our daughters to them, we also took an oath that we would kill anybody who didn't join us. So let's look around. Is there anybody here from Israel that didn't join us? Is there anybody that did, that's not represented here? So they began to look around and they took a little census very quickly and they realized that nobody from the town of Jabesh Gilead had come. And when, so they figured, oh, okay, nobody came from that town. We took an oath that we would kill anybody who didn't come. Let's send 12,000 special forces down there and we're going to kill every man, every adult woman that's been married, every child, and we're only going to save the eligible young ladies. Does that sound like a good plan to you at all? It doesn't to me. It sounds like trying to solve the problem of too much death with too much death. It sounds like repeating the same thing that got them into the situation they're in. Their initial solution was just go kill everybody in Jabesh Gilead except the eligible young ladies and then give those young ladies as wives to the 600 men of Benjamin who were left in an exile. Now let me ask you a question. What crime was Jabesh Gilead guilty of? The only crime that they were guilty of is that they didn't answer the muster to call to arms and join the battle. We don't know the situation. We don't know why not. There's nothing said about why they didn't come. They just didn't come. But notice what the 11 tribes of Israel decided to do. They decided that they would kill more people to make up for killing so many people. Now, I look at this and I, I, I just have to ask a couple questions. If they were really concerned about making this right, and finding wives for those 600 men. Why didn't they just walk down to Jabesh Gilead and talk to them? Why didn't they go in and say, hey, we got a problem. Can we meet with the elders of the city? Here's the problem. We killed nearly all the Benjamites. 
and we need some wives for them. We were wondering, since you weren't there to take the oath that you couldn't give your wives, would you be willing to let your young ladies marry these Benjaminite men? But they didn't do that, did they? No. They sent 12,000 soldiers down and just killed them, just wiped them out. Why did they do that? Because they had become so accustomed to solving their problems with violence and death. This is what they did. You got a problem? Kill somebody. I know that sounds harsh, but how can we come to any other conclusion that that was the culture that they lived in? But I see a bigger problem than this is that they think they can solve their problem by repeating the same mistakes. Why do people think that they can solve their problems by doing the same things that cause the problems? We see this all the time. People make bad choices, and so bad things happen. And a lot of times, people try to fix that problem by making more bad choices. And you just want to look at them and say, no, stop making bad choices. You keep doing this, and this happens. You don't want this to happen, stop doing this. It was Albert Einstein who said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. But that's human nature. There's a proverb that speaks of the dog returning to his vomit, so doth a fool to his folly, just repeating the pattern over and over and over again and then wonder why in the world are things not turning out right. That's what they're doing here. They're doing the same things and expecting a different result. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow your mind here. Make a statement. It's going to just floor you. You might want to write it down. Okay, here it is. If you want things to be different, then do different things. Mind blown, right? I know when we say it like that, we're like, well, yeah, that's so simple. But why don't we do that? Do you understand that that's the essence of true repentance? The essence of true repentance is I'm going to do different things. What I've been doing is wrong. I was thinking wrong, so I was doing wrong. So now I'm going to think right and I'm going to do right. That's repentance. Acts 26, 18. Paul, talking about his commission from God, his calling from God, said that God called him to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That is a, that's repentance, turning from darkness to light. It's doing different things. But that's not what Israel's doing in Judges 21. Doing the same thing. They're just doing more of it. So now we come to verses 13 through 18 and we see the complication. You know, whenever man tries to solve man's problems, man always complicates his problems. And that's what happened here. Verse 13, the whole congregation sent some to speak to the children of Benjamin that were in the rock Rimmon and to call peaceably unto them. All right, so they've gone down to Jabesh Gilead. They've wiped out all of those and they brought back uh, uh, their daughters. And so now they send... Uh, people to go talk to the 600 men that uh, were in exile to make peace with them. 
Verse 14, Benjamin came again at that time, and they gave them the wives that they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead, and yet so they sufficed them not. And the people repented them for Benjamin, because that the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, How shall we do for wives for them that remain, seeing the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for them that be escaped of Benjamin, that a tribe uh, be not destroyed of Israel. Howbeit we may not give them wives of our daughters, for the children of Israel have sworn, saying, Cursed be he that giveth a wife to Benjamin. So there was a complication. When they went to Jabesh Gilead, and they killed everybody except the eligible young ladies. There were only 400 eligible young ladies, but there were 600 Benjamite, Benjaminites. That meant they were 200 wives short. And now they're like, hmm, that didn't work. Now what are we going to do? They have a new problem now. There weren't enough eligible young women in Jabesh Gilead. So they were 200 short. Again, I look at this and I just have to wonder myself, why didn't they just send a couple people down to get a count before they went into Jabesh Gilead and killed everybody? You know? All you had to do was go down there and ask around a little bit and do a little bit of a census in Italian and be like, you know what, there's only 400 eligible young ladies here, so it's not going to be enough. Maybe we should think twice before coming and killing everybody because it's not going to solve our problem. This was very easily foreseeable. They didn't think it through. They acted hastily. They acted unadvisedly. They went through all of that they went through, all of that carnage, all of that death, all of that war, all of that terror, and it still didn't solve the problem. And isn't, isn't that just like us? Don't we do the same thing? We do, when we do not respond to God's conviction biblically with confession and repentance, we make things worse. When we shift the blame, when we try to manipulate our way out of the consequences of our sin, when we do anything and everything except handle it God's way, we make matters worse. Never underestimate your ability to mess stuff up. I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> we mess stuff up when we don't do it God's way. If instead of getting right with God, we try to prove ourselves right, or we try to make it right without genuine heart change, all we are doing is prolonging the consequences and exacerbating the problems in our lives, just like they did here. I mean, honestly, this was so easily avoidable. All they had to do was simple math, not even calculus. Just add up, and they would have realized... No, this isn't going to solve our problem. But you know what? So many people, they make bad choices and bad things happen as a result of it. And instead of responding biblically, they react in the flesh. And it just blows up further. We need to stop. Listen to God. Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and do things God's way. Number four, let's notice their desperation, verses 19 through 23. If it wasn't so sad, we would laugh at this. Verse 19, then they said, 
Behold, there is a feast of the Lord in Shiloh yearly, in a place which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goeth up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south of Lebanon. Therefore they commanded the children of Benjamin, saying, Okay, here it is. This is the great genius plan that's going to solve all the problems. Verse 20, they commanded the children of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in wait in the vineyards, and see, and behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance and dances, then come ye out of the vineyards, and catch you every man his wife of the daughters of Shiloh. And go to the land of Benjamin, and it shall be when their fathers or their brethren come unto us to complain, that we will say unto them, Be favorable unto them for our sakes, because we reserve not to each man his wife in the war. For ye did not give unto them at this time that ye should be guilty. And the children of Benjamin did so, and took them wives according to their number of them that danced whom they caught. And they went and returned unto their inheritance and repaired the cities and dwelt in them. How many of you have ever seen the movie Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? I cannot but think of that when I read this story. For those of you who don't know the story of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, it's, I think, a great story. But in the story, six of the seven brothers literally kidnap them girls to try and marry them. And, and this was the brilliant solution that Israel came up with. We, we're 200 wives short for Benjamin here, so what are we going to do? Hey, I'll tell you what we'll do. There's this, 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 uh, this big party they have every year down uh, uh, at this certain location. And, uh, and, and you can go and you can hide in the vineyards. And when the young ladies come out to dance in this festival, go out there and kidnap your wife. And, and, and when, their, when their dads and their brothers and their uncles and their grandpas come to us complaining because you kidnap their daughters and sisters and nieces and everything, granddaughters. We'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll tell them that it's all right and, and, and we'll just, we'll intercede for you and make sure everything's okay. And so Benjamin's like, okay, we'll do that. And so they went out and they just kidnapped a couple hundred women, made them their wives, and they all lived happily ever after. Not. I, I read that and I'm, I just shake my head. What, what was their final solution here? Kidnapping? The potential for more violence? Immunity for criminals? How in the world did they think that this was okay? What, what biblical basis did they have for this plan? None. But you see, a culture of spiritual anarchy results in these kinds of atrocities. Right becomes wrong. Wrong becomes right. Justice becomes injustice. Injustice becomes justice. Everything is turned upside down. It becomes like Isaiah 50 verses 20 and 21. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. That was Israel in the book of Judges. Hey, this is a great idea. Let's kill people and kidnap women. 
Proverbs 17, 15, He that justifieth the wicked, and he that condemneth the just, even they both are an abomination to the Lord. And when Israel said that we won't punish you for what you're doing, what were they doing? They were justifying the wicked. And when they said, we'll speak to the, the, the fathers and ask them to be favorable unto you for our sakes, what were they doing? They were essentially condemning the just, those who had a just complaint at least. Everything had become upside down in Israel. Why? Because they had forsaken the Lord and they had followed idols. All the way back in Judges chapter 2, you may remember when we began this some time ago, we looked at a particular verse of Scripture, Judges 2 and verse number 12, that describes everything that happened during the time of Judges. It says, They forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. That was the problem right there. They forsook the Lord and they followed other gods. And so everything was upside down. Good was evil. Evil was good. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So notice the conclusion, verses 24 and 25. And the children of Israel departed thence at that time, every man to his tribe and to his family. And they went out from thence, every man to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Why is it so important that we submit to God's rule in our lives? It's because if we do not submit to God's rule, we are guilty of idolatry. Because something will rule your life. Whether it's your own desires, or your own ambitions, or whether it's an outside pressure, or maybe it's a pursuit of pleasure, something will be in control of your life. And if it's not God, then it's an idol. It's a false god. When we do that which is right in our own eyes instead of what God says is right, then we are putting ourselves in God's place. We are saying, I'm going to determine what's right. I'm going to do what I feel like is best and what I think is the right thing to do. And the end result of that way of living is pain, misery, destruction, and death. Throughout this series, I've referenced some verses in Proverbs on a number of occasions, and I would like to look at these together with you tonight. I'm going to do it a little bit differently here, okay? I'm going to have half of you look up one verse, and I'm going to have half of you look up the other verse, and then we're going to read them at the same time. So this time I'm going to divide it up. How many of you, you have a birthday that falls in the first half of the year, January through June? You are January through June birthdays. Raise your hand. All right, if you just raised your hand, January through June birthdays, please look up Proverbs 14, 12. Proverbs 14, 12, and be ready to read it aloud in just a moment when I say so. All right? If you did not just raise your hand, that should be because your birthday falls July to December. Either that or you don't have a birthday. So those of you who didn't raise your hand, I want you, if you would please, to look up Proverbs 16, 25. 
All right, so the first group, Proverbs 14, 12. The second group, Proverbs 16, 25. And in a moment, we're going to read these two different verses of Scripture at the same time. And you may be thinking, that's kind of weird. Isn't that going to be confusing? Maybe, but... All right, everybody has their place? All right, here we go. Ready, begin. There is a way... Now, the only difference in those verses are the words which and that. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which. Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way that. Everything else about those verses is identical. You know, if God chose to repeat himself, maybe we should pay attention. Two times God said the exact same thing. That there is a way which seems right to a man. That people evaluate their own lives and they say, this looks like the right path. This is what I'm going to do. This is the way I want to go. This feels right. I think this is right. Everything about this seems good to me. This is what I'm going to do. And they do not consider God. They do not consult the Holy Spirit. They do not look into the Word of God. They just do what they feel like doing. And God says, the end of that way is death. It's death. And that's what we see over and over again in the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, the judges were never successful in bringing the people of God to permanent obedience. It was always temporary at best. Short periods of peace. But then the cycle would repeat and it would get worse and worse and worse. And we get to the end of the book and it kind of leaves us wondering, is this the best that we can do? Samson? Biggest and strongest, that's the best we can do, really. Gideon, he's the best we can do. And all of these others, can't we do better than that? And the answer is, no, we cannot. You see, kind of the point of the book of Judges is that the best that we can do will never be good enough. We need a better judge a better deliverer. We need a perfect judge. We need Jesus. He is the righteous judge who will judge the quick and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. He is the perfect deliverer who rescues His people from their sin and then gives them the power to live holy lives. He is the great teacher who instructs the people how to live righteously. So what should we do to avoid the painful cycle that we see repeated in Judges? The same thing that the people in Judges should have done. Turn with me to one final passage of Scripture, Joshua 24. Joshua 24. In Joshua 24, Joshua's old and on his deathbed, but before he... Before he dies, he wants to give a final message to the Israelites, a charge, a challenge to them. He rehearses to them some of their history. But in Joshua 24, verse number 15, he calls them to make a choice. He says, And if it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, 
Choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were the on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Make a choice. Are you going to follow God or are you going to forsake Him and follow idols? If you follow God, the result will be a life of blessing. Doesn't mean there won't be hardships, there won't be, there, that there won't be trials. There will be. But through those, you will be blessed. Through those, you will grow. Through those trials and through those hardships, you will be drawn closer to God. But if you forsake the Lord and you follow idols, the result is going to be what you see repeated in the book of Judges. Misery, oppression, destruction, and death. Follow the Lord. And you'll find a life of blessing and joy and the glory of God. Heavenly Father, I know that it is easy for us to read stories like this in the, in the Bible and, and think to ourselves that we would never do anything so horrible. But the honest truth is that we are all capable of all kinds of sins. And may we not be so arrogant as to think that we couldn't descend into the same debauchery and wickedness and unrighteousness that the world around us is already in every single day. Lord, give us humility. Make us holy and righteous people. Convict us of our sin, Lord, that we might repent and that we might walk in the light as you are in the light and have fellowship one with another. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.